Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy 4. Deb concluded her song there. She covered a topic that we don't typically like to think about. The idea of death. Reality of life that we all must face is the reality of death. It is coming for all of us. We all, if Christ tarries, will die. We don't like to think about death. In fact, we spend much of our life ignoring death. Thinking about everything else we can possibly think of. But death is coming. One thing I've observed as a reality is that as people seem to get closer to death, they begin to think more about how they lived. They begin to spend time evaluating their life and thinking about living even a little differently in the time that they have left. We can see this in the final statements of several people. As Napoleon, the French leader, lay dying, he made this statement. I die before my time. My body will be given back to the earth to become the food of worms. Such is the fate which so soon awaits the great Napoleon. It's kind of depressing. Gandhi, right? The great renowned Hindu religious leader on his deathbed, he confessed. My days are numbered. I'm not likely to live very long, perhaps a year or a little more. For the first time in 50 years, I find myself in a slew of despondency. All about me is darkness. I'm praying for the light. 19th century French philosopher Talleyrand wrote a note, which he left on his nightstand that they found after he died. And on the note was written this. Behold, 83 years passed away. What cares? What agitations? What anxieties? What ill will? What sad complications, all without other results except great fatigue of mind and body and a profound sentiment of discouragement with regard to the future and of disquiet and with regard to the past. You know, each of these men lived their lives for certain things and they began to reevaluate those things on their deathbed. Right. Each of those statements seemed to be marked by regrets by frustration, by depression. Is this going to be our response when the end comes for us? As we near the end of life, are we going to look back with regrets, with frustration, with sorrow? Or will we be like the Apostle Paul, marked by satisfaction and joy over a life well lived for God? In our text this morning, we observe a different attitude from Paul. As the steps of the executioner were drawing ever closer and he knew, I am about to die. There's no escaping this time. Paul does an evaluation of his life. And as he does this evaluation of his life, he comes to a conclusion of satisfaction. And my goal today as we look over this text is that we will understand what we must do and how we must live in order to have that same reality in our lives. Let's look at our text this morning, 2 Timothy 4, beginning in verse number 6. Paul writes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. 
Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who loved his appearing. See, death is a reality for all of us. My desire is that we all come to the end point of life and look back with satisfaction. My prayer is that we'll be able to echo Paul's statements. But in order for this to happen, in order for us to be ready for death, ready for the end, we must understand and live today in light of three important realities. Three important realities we find in this text. The first important reality is the reality of life's end. Too many people live as though they believe that they're going to live forever. That they're immortal. That death will not come for them. They, they live as though they are invincible. However, we recognize that our time on earth is limited. We all must one day face the reality of death. It's not something we like to think about. It's kind of depressing, kind of dark, kind of gloomy. But it is a necessary reality for us to understand because the sooner we begin to live with that reality in mind the sooner we'll be able to face it with no regrets. As Paul sits in his prison cell, he's come to the conclusion that the end has finally come. It's near. He recognizes the reality of death. In verse 6, he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. And yet even as he faces death, even as he recognizes the reality of his life's end, his response informs us of two important viewpoints. Even in death, even our death is an act of worship. And the end of this life is not the end of life. First, we observe that even, in our, even our death is an act of worship. He says, I am being poured out as a drink offering. What is he talking about here? Well, the background of this statement is the drink offering, the Old Testament ritual of pouring out a drink before the altar as a sacrifice to God, often as the conclusion of all the other sacrifices. We find it in several texts in the Old Testament. Exodus 29, 40 and 41. In the law were said, and with the first lamb, they're to offer a tenth measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hint of wine of beaten oil and a fourth of a hint of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. In Leviticus twenty three thirteen, we find and the grain offering with it shall be two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with, with a pleasing aroma. And the drink offering with it shall be of wine a fourth of a hen. And we find it again in Numbers 15, 5 through 10. What do we find here? Well, we find that according to the law, when a lamb was sacrificed, they were to offer a drink offering that consisted of a fourth of a hen of wine. In other words, one hen is slightly more than one gallon. So about a fourth of a gallon, a quart, of wine was to be offered whenever a sacrifice was made. When the offering was a, a ram 
The prescribed offering of drink offering was a third of a hen. And for a bull, it was a half of a hen. And, and since what would happen is they would gradually pour out this wine before the altar as an offering to God. It was a good metaphor that Paul used as the act of, of worship in his own death. The fact that he was presenting his life to God as an offering. The idea that he viewed his entire life of faith as a living sacrifice. And this death was his final sacrificial act to God. Just as the drink offering was the final sacrificial act, so his death was the final act of worship before God. Some five years earlier, he had written the believers in Philippi in Philippians 2, uh, 17. He said, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. He viewed his life as an act of worship to God. So even death was an act of worship. And we must note that he recognized that he was not in control of his life. He said he was being poured out as a drink offering. So his death was not meaningless. Instead, it was planned as a necessary final act of worship to God. You know, often as the end of life comes, the body gets weaker. The, the individual maybe becomes more frail. The struggles become a little more intense. And often as individuals age, they begin to question why God is allowing them to go through this. Why, why do I have to face this at the end of my life? Why are you allowing this struggle to happen? And, and perhaps, perhaps this is some of you today. You understand that the end of life is coming. You experience daily physical, emotional, and spiritual struggles as your time draws ever shorter. And in the midst of your pain and suffering, remember that this is God's call to you as a final act of worship. He's demonstrating his power through your weakness. He's demonstrating his sufficiency through your insufficiency. He's demonstrating his hope through the seemingly hopelessness of your situation. So point to God in the way that you struggle. Because you need to recognize that the end of life is not the end of life. It's an act of worship leading in to true life. You see, we see that the end of this life is not the end of life. He says, the time of my departure is at hand. It's an interesting little phrase. That word time of my departure was used of a ship lifting its anchor, ready to set sail and of a, of a soldier striking up camp and ready to go home. And both the ship and the soldiers were going home. And so Paul used his, you know, viewed his death as his home going. Paul's convinced 
that the time of his departure is at hand. Even now the clouds of death had come and, and they still hovered over him. But even in the difficult imprisonment that will end in death, Paul is not defeated. He sees God's control even in his death. He, he views his death not as defeat, not as the end, but merely the, the loosening, the departure from this life to the next. You know, in other passages, he speaks of the believer's death as a departure, a departure to be with Christ. Philippians 1.23. To be at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8. He sees it as, as gain. Philippians 1.21. Or, or as far better. Death as being far better than life. Philippians 1.23 again. Uh, or even falling asleep in Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4.14. And now, after having said that for years, the time of his departure is here. The weighing of the anchors, the loosening of the sails, the ropes being released has begun. And soon the blast of wind will take those sails and then almost immediately he will reach the everlasting harbor of eternal bliss. What might seem like the end to Timothy appears to the apostle as a glorious new era when he'll be released from the constraints of this life and this body and all the present restrictions he faces and will be with God in eternal glory. We're reminded of what he said in 1 Corinthians 15. When this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. See, death is inevitable for us all. We don't like to think about it, but it is a reality. The end of this life will come and then we will enter the next. For the believer... It's not something to fear. Rather, it's something to celebrate. Our death is a final act of worship to God. The way you are facing it is a final act of worship to God. So we must seek to die well. We must seek to die confident in the sovereign care of God. And as we endure the oftentimes excruciating process of death, we need to point to our ever-satisfying Savior, God Himself. This means, then, that since we all have the reality of the end of this life, we must also secondly recognize the need to finish well. Paul says, I fought a good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. As Paul examines his life, as he looks back, as the end is here, he concludes with satisfaction that he has no regrets. He's, he's pressed towards the finish line and will stand before God with joy. You know, every four years as the Olympics take place, the videos emerge of athletes who start really well. They get out in front, but fade 
in the finish. And we're reminded that it's not about how you start, it's about how you finish that matters the most. You know, many believers get off to a good start. They, they dedicate themselves to a life lived well, but then the busyness, the cares, the concerns, the sorrows, the frivolities distract them and they fade away from their focus on eternity. You know, some live well, but then as their bodies begin to degrade, they become bitter and frustrated and angry at God. In Paul's testimony, we see the importance of finishing well. He teaches us this lesson through these three, fra- these three phrases. First, he says, I have fought the good fight. That statement holds two really important truths. First, we're reminded that life, and and particularly the Christian life, is a struggle. It's a fight. We're called to fight. In fact, that very word, I have fought the good fight, means I I have struggled and exerted effort in the great struggle. Paul recognized that he was in a spiritual struggle. The the whole of life is is an intense struggle against an opposition in which spiritual power must be matched by a personal commitment and resolve to endure to the end of the contest. Satan and our flesh send blow after blow our way. And we need to match these blows with the personal resolve and the spiritual discipline to fight for our spiritual lives. You know, at the beginning, at the end of 1 Timothy, Paul admonished Timothy with similar words. In 1 Timothy 1.18, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage or fight the good warfare. He concludes 1 Timothy with 1 Timothy 6.12. Fight the good fight of faith. We're reminded your life is a battle. You know, we want those beds of ease. We want the good life, the easy life. But Paul reminds us that doesn't exist. So you need to fight for your spiritual life. But second, we're reminded that this fight is a good fight. He says, fight the good fight. I have fought the good fight. This is a noble fight. It's, it's worth the battle and the struggle. When you live for God, your cause is noble. And so the cost is always worth it. Because the cause is the kingdom. The gospel is what we pursue and it's noble. With the second metaphor, the image shifts to the event of a foot race. And it very well may have been the climactic event of the first century Greco-Roman games. He says, I have finished the race. I've completed, I've arrived at the goal to which I was running. You know, the metaphor of life being a race is so apt. With every lap we run in this race, we run with the finish in mind. The Olympic runners, as they run, they don't just run and think, oh, I had a great second lap. Okay, I'm good. No, they keep pressing. They keep pushing. 
but a finish. In Hebrews, we're encouraged to lay aside everything that hinders us in this race. Every weight and every sin, everything good or bad that keeps us from running the way we should. A picture is of that racer getting into the starting blocks. Wearing a giant backpack, blue jeans, cowboy boots. We look at them and think, what are you doing? No, lay aside the weight. Is there anything wrong with a good backpack? No. Cowboy boots are great. I love jeans, but they're not proper for a race. Paul says, I finished my race. I ran it correctly. The unnecessary aspects of life that weigh us down, the sin that holds us back, that seeks to destroy us, we are to resist. We're to focus on finishing the race and finishing strong. Years earlier, Paul gave us a picture of this kind of race as he addressed the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace. And now, years later, at the end of his life, he can state, I've achieved that goal. I finished it. My prayer is that we can all state that when our time comes. God's called all of us to serve him with our life. And we cannot afford to be distracted by all in this world that would seek to steal our attention from God and pressing forward. We must press forward. And when the day comes, I pray that we can confidently state like Paul, I have finished the race. Some are nearer to the finish than others. Finish strong. You've run so faithfully, so far. Don't quit now in the final laps. Don't fade as the finish draws near. Don't just leave it for the younger people. You press forward. Finish the race. To those who it appears you have much of the race left. Remind you that it's not how you start but how you finish. So get back in the race. Prioritize serving God. Live for Him. Don't let the affairs of this life move the things of God, His Word and His church and His gospel to the background. Run the race because you don't know when the end is. How do we do that? Well, Paul concludes... I have kept the faith. I've remained faithful. I've remained true to the faith. Throughout his life, he has stayed faithful to preach the unvarnished gospel of Christ. He's not lost his faith that God would complete the work. He did not move away from his trust in Christ. He kept the faith. He wanted to end As well as he began. And now he's done so. How great is the tragedy when Christians become disqualified in old age. Because they fail in the faith. I encourage you. Finish strong. Keep 
the faith. Fight to the end. We live in a world that loves to criticize. They criticize those who are willing to sacrifice and struggle and fight and run for God. And they're looked at as backward and weird. We see those who are struggling to keep going in spite of old age. And we think you've done your job. Just relax. But I'm reminded of a section of a speech by Theodore Roosevelt given in 1910 that applies so well here. He said this. It's not the critic who counts. Not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there's no effort without error and shortcoming but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause and who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. You see, you cannot finish well if you're not in the arena. So fight. Run, keep the faith. Reminded of what Paul said in Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we will reap if we do not give up. In Philippians 3, he said, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. So press forward. That like Paul, as you near the end of life, you can look back without regret and say, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. You see, the final reality we must remember is that there is a reward for finishing well. The reward of finishing well. In verse 8, he says, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. He says, finally, I'm doing all this finally because there's a reward coming. There's a reward for all who finish well. And as we look at this, I'd like to do so by answering three questions. First off, what is this reward? What is it? He says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. We know first that it is laid up. It means it's reserved. It's been stored safely and carefully guarded just for you. The reward that's laid away for us is the crown of righteousness. The crown in this context is in the context of athletics. It's the emblem of victory awarded to the winner of the contest and in public recognition of their outstanding performance. One man put it this way. The intrinsic valueless, uh, it, it is intrinsically valueless being made of evergreen leaves rather than of silver or gold. The garland worn by victors in the Greek games were greatly prized. In fact, one man says many a little town in those days took a piece of its white wall down in order that its son crowned with the crown of the Isthmus or of the Olympia might enter it by a gate unused before. The crown itself was worthless 
but the prize was great. But our prize is not worthless. We see it called other things elsewhere. In James 1.12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In 1 Peter 5.4, Peter says, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In Revelation 2.10, Christ himself says, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Here Paul labels this crown we receive as the crown of righteousness. doesn't mean that it's a crown for living righteously, but rather the crown itself is righteousness. It's the permanent and perfect state of righteousness into which every Christian is brought by God. We're reminded that on the other side of the finish line, we'll be made righteous. Right now, this is a declarative act. We've been declared righteous. We're positionally righteous because of the blood of Christ. But we still struggle with unrighteousness. Right? We still struggle with sin. And we still struggle with the effects of sin. When we cross the finish line, we'll be rewarded with complete righteousness. That means we will no longer struggle with sin. <clears throat> Excuse me. Think about this for a moment. What has sin caused in this life? What's the result of sin? All pain, sorrow, suffering, death, anxiety, illness, conflict, evil. All of these are the result of sin. And when sin is removed, these are removed as well. This means that this reward, this crown is a life without pain or hardship or sorrow or death or anxiety or illness or conflict or evil. That's the reward. That's what awaits us. The second question we want to ask is who will give us this? Who will award it? We're told the Lord, the righteous judge, will award it on that day. Now, there may be an implied contrast between the Lord, the righteous judge, and the wrong judgments of the emperor Nero made towards Paul. His perverted sense of justice. Towards the apostle. The idea may on the other hand also be that this righteous judge is unlike the is impartial, unlike sometimes the decisions of the judges in the Olympics. In verse one, Paul began his charge to Timothy to preach the gospel. He said that this charge is in the presence of God and Christ Jesus. Verse one, who will judge living in the dead. He calls up images of Christ the judge and the appearing of Jesus at his return. And Paul uses the same images here to describe what lies ahead for him, for him now. He says, and I'm about to face that righteous judge. And Paul pictures Christ 
as that righteous judge standing on the other side of that finish line, holding the wreath of victory, the crown of righteousness, ready to present it to him as he crosses the finish line. And it motivates him to push towards the finish. The crown of righteousness is a gift from the righteous judge presented based on the righteous death and life of Christ. A man said it this way, the emperor Nero may declare Paul guilty and condemn him to death, but there will soon come a magnificent reversal of Nero's verdict when the Lord, the righteous judge, declares him righteous. There'll be no favoritism or unfair decision. The reward for finishing the race is certain. And the reminder is this, we may receive injustice in this life. We may see culture and society and even government turn against us in this life and serve injustice. But there is a great reversal coming. The Lord, the righteous judge, will award the crown and it will be done so fairly. What does this cause for us? Well, we're reminded in Hebrews chapter 12, since we are so Surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, that righteous judge, the author and perfecter and founder of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such hostility of sinners against himself, lest you be weary and faint in your mind. How is it that you don't quit at the end of life? How is it that you can press forward in spite of the intense physical and emotional and spiritual struggles that you face as your body gets weaker and your life more frail and your struggles more intense? You do so by looking at the one who founded and perfected and finished this race. He'll give you the strength to finish strong because he's standing there on the other side of the finish line, holding that wreath of victory, waiting for you. Who's going to get this award? Who will get this crown? We're reminded in 2 Timothy 2, 5, a little bit earlier, we saw it that an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So who is it that's crowned? He says, not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Galatians 5, 5, he echoes the sentiment. He says, for through the spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Paul had talked about himself in verses six through eight. And at the end, he says, but this isn't just my testimony. This awaits everyone who loves his appearing. It means they've loved his appearing in the past and will continue to do so to the point of receiving the reward. You see, longing for that future event of Christ's return implies an awareness that he's coming and living in light of that awareness, living for him the seriousness of his return. That readiness is the product of a life lived in the spirit, obedient to the word, dedicated to Christ, prioritizing faithfulness to him, loving Christ's appearing, being ready for it has nothing to do with misplaced confidence or, or as Bonhoeffer, the German pastor, called it cheap grace. No, to long for Christ's appearing is not a demand for constant discussions of end times, 
but a requirement that believers would perform the lifestyle of Titus 2, 11 to 13. The grace of Christ, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, being ready and longing for Christ's appearing is a sure evidence of justification. The believer, having been justified, looks forward to Christ's coming and has set his heart on it. Second Peter 3.13 tells us, but according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The question is, are you living in light of what's coming? Do you long for eternity? See, when eternity comes, your bank account will not matter. When eternity comes, it won't necessarily matter how much people really actually liked you. When eternity comes, it's all going to be about what you did for Christ. Death awaits all of us. Hebrews 9.27 tells us it's appointed for man once to die and after that comes the judgment. So we must live our lives in light of the end. We can't afford to become distracted by the things of this world. What matters is how we finish this race. We must fight the good fight and run to the finish. Some of you are nearing the end. Don't give up. Finish well as an act of worship to God. How you finish declares to us what you really think of God. And when you finish well, it tells us, it declares that serving God is worth everything it costs. Some of you appear to have a lot of race left. Don't become distracted by all that the world has that would steal your attention. Live for God. As one man said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So that when the end comes, you can confidently say, I fought a good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who've loved his appearing. We conclude with three things to think about. Three so what's. Number one, live your life expecting to die. We avoid this at every call, at every turn. We seek health, and we ought to care for our bodies. But often we do so because we don't even want to think about death. We don't want to think about the end. Live your life expecting to die. So that when you stand before God, you may do so with joy and without shame. This means, number two, then, that you need to live your life for God 
not yourself. Live your life for God, not yourself. This means that you may deny yourself some things you think you want, or perhaps even things you think you need that you might serve others better. It might mean that you give to his kingdom and his church instead of getting that extra thing you don't need. It might be that it means you deny promotions or other dreams in order to sacrifice and serve other people. Live your life for God, not yourself. Don't make life about you. Finally, finish well. Too often I've heard older people say, it's time for the younger ones to take over. And that there's some truth in that. The younger ones ought to take over. But let me encourage you. We need you. We can't afford for you to fade into the background. We need you to take leadership, to lead us through your life, through the lessons you've learned. Finish well. Too often we see retirement and old age as the time in which we relax and live life's reward. Let me encourage you. That life's reward does not come until life is over. So finish well. To those whose life appears to have many years left. Finish well. Don't stumble. Don't be distracted. Press on towards the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Death is inevitable. But it doesn't have to be something we fear. It doesn't have to be something that we avoid. It doesn't have to be something we don't talk about. Rather, it ought to be something we long for and look for. Not that we pursue death. But that we live life with it in mind. Knowing that at the end of this life is real life. And it's inevitably worth it. So press on. Keep Moving forward. Father, we thank you that because of the death of your son, we don't have to fear death. Because of the death of your son, eternity awaits us in which all sin and sorrow will be gone. So, Lord, help us to live with the end in mind. Lord, I thank you for so many in this body who have been an example of what that looks like, who have lived life properly, faithfully, and even now are pressing forward in faithfulness towards the finish line. Lord, I ask that you would bless them and give them the strength that they need to finish well, to do so as an act of worship to you. Help us never take this life for granted, that everything we do, we will walk worthy of you. Thank you for the power to do so. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.